As I mentioned before, the post-Thanksgiving season has led a lot of our congregation or people in our congregation to visit family in other places, to be away from us this morning, to be providentially hindered from joining us this morning. And so our group is uh, always a small group, is even more reduced this morning. So I thought of one of two things. We could um, open up the class for a discussion that you can contribute a question if you have one. Um, and if that not, my only backup plan is to go back into Romans, maybe to do a little bit um, less than I'd like to normally, although we've been kind of focused on concerns that have occupied our minds, and we could easily be occupied on something like the wrath of God that meets us the next idea or concept in Romans one eighteen or one nineteen. Um, so we could do that. Uh, so I'll leave it up to you. So let me just ask this. Does anybody have a question you'd like to raise this morning in uh, our Sunday school class? Something that came out of your reading of God's words, something that came out of interactions you had with other people on Thanksgiving, something that uh, has been long uh, perplexing your mind, things you've thought about and considered and said, oh, I think I'm going to ask Pastor that question next time we gather in an open forum discussion. If you've had any of that, those things percolating in your minds, uh, feel free to raise them this morning. Well, you voted for Romans, so <laughs> to Romans we go. That's no problem at all. Let's go to Romans, back to chapter 1. And again, we come to a book that has as its core theme uh, the gospel that Paul is anxious to preach to those who are at Rome. And again, it's important to remember that Paul had not been to Rome. Rome was not one of the congregations that he founded on any of his missionary journeys. It was likely founded by those who were present at the church, I'm sorry, at the uh, Feast of Pentecost when Peter's Pentecostal sermon led to the salvation of 3,000 souls. We're told among them there were those from Rome. And likely they went back to Rome and they began to gather and meet together as the church ought to. And that was the beginning of the church at Rome. Who its leaders were, who its uh, principal um, shapers and formers of the life of the congregation were is not known to us. Um, But we know it wasn't Paul. And yet uh, Paul addresses this church um, with the full dignity of a church. He doesn't think, well, because this is a church is not Pauline, wasn't founded by me, that therefore it's not a church in all the fullness of its dignity and rights as a church. Um, Paul didn't need to be Lord of the church. There's only one Lord, and, and that's Jesus. And he approaches the ch- people at Rome with a desire to minister to them, to be a blessing to them. Sight unseen. He has that in his heart to bless the people of God in other places. And, you know, in the main, I mean, I know there's all kinds of problems with the concept of church today. And many things that put out their signs and their, um, their marquees that say, this is the church that meets in this place, and we might have our doubts or questions if it's a true church or not. But though we know that that's a fact, if God opens up doors of opportunity to meet people, to fellowship with people, I think our our assertion should be, and I think I want to make sure I didn't lose Barb here. No, I didn't. Um, is that these are not our enemies. 
that these are our friends. These are not people that our main concern should be to persuade them of our own convictions, although wonderfully reformed and baptistic they are. Nonetheless, uh, that shouldn't be our first um, impulse. Our first impulse is they belong to Christ. And belonging to Christ and having received the gospel, uh, we want to know them better. We want to walk with them. We want to fellowship with them. We want to partner with them as believers in Jesus. That's Paul's understanding of the church at Rome. Never been in there, sight unseen, doesn't know what all the inworkings of the church are. And yet he's concerned that uh, these would be the very church that would lead him to have a ministry further to um, the the um, the West in uh, extending the gospel to Spain. He mentions that in chapter fifteen. So I just think that's that's the normal reaction we should have to church in the churches in the world. Although I confess, often in my Christian life, that judgmental spirit of just concluding not everybody that says they're Christians are Christians it makes you skeptical. It makes you um, it makes you uh, suspicious. And we have kind of a, an attitude of suspicion that characterizes our interaction with Christians as we meet them. And I understand the reasons for that. But I'm saying it's something that we ought to resist. Don't, don't assume that they are not believers. Don't assume that they have uh, gone the way of uh, some pernicious evil or error that disqualifies them as a church. If you find out that that's the truth, that is the truth, that'll happen. That'll be discovered somewhere along the way. But don't let that be your assumption. Assume the best. Assume that they are, in fact, the Lord's. And then endeavor to partner with them and to bless them and to look to be, as Paul says, uh, uh, one who, who desires to be among them, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift um, and that I might strengthen you and in turn I might be strengthened by you. That should be something of our assumptions. And that's a project. I know especially if some of us are, have lived long with this with the with the perspective of suspicion, uh, that doesn't change overnight. But I mean, let's look to just be more open-minded to the possibility that, in fact, God's worked there. I think sometimes our suspicion is God's worked amongst us with our set of understandings and our set of beliefs, and they're the best. And uh, I, I can I can believe that they're the best, and not discount everything else is not a work of God. Um, there's an old writer, his name is Benjamin Warfield, and he wrote a, a book called The Plan of Salvation. And one of the things I loved about The Plan of Salvation is he laid out um, the different views in the history of the church along the lines of what is their beliefs about theism, what are their beliefs about uh, Trinitarianism. I, I, I think theism included Trinitarianism. But then what were their views of the gospel in terms of evangelicalism? Or what was their views of supernaturalism? God intervening in human history? Or their, and he went and he said that here's evangelicalism or reformed evangelicalism or whatever we are. And that's in the midst of all of these things, but not alone. We don't occupy that space alone. <laughs> There's lots of other people that occupy that space as being uh, Trinitarian Christians, as being supernaturalist Christians, and they're not necessarily Reformed Christians or Baptistic Christians. Um, you know, and then there's groups of who are evangelical that aren't Reformed evangelical. There are different kinds of evangelical, but they're still evangelical. And um, there may be Reformed people that are not Baptists, but they're still re- uh, Reformed people. And we need to extend our love and our hearts and our fellowship to them. And uh, I just like that way of viewing the church world uh, in terms of the fact that we have our distinctives, yes. But we also have these areas of commonality. And these areas of commonality are not to be ignored because the distinctives are not held. 
And they say, well, because you don't hold these distinctives as Reformed Baptists, we're not going to fellowship with you. I don't see that's Paul's attitude in churches that he didn't have first-hand knowledge of, but for his own experience, because he wasn't there to found it and to have an info. Yet he assumes these are people worshiping Christ. These are the people that are approaching God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's coming amongst them as someone that wants to help them, strengthen them, bless them, benefit them, and in turn be benefited and blessed by them. So anyway, just think that's more of an attitude that it's wise for us to adopt. Tony, please. We had a, a, a former member that would bring up the term the American church. <laughs> the American and church. It was always sort of a negative context. It was never. And I always thought, you know, I have children in this American church. Mm-hmm. And I've seen change. I've seen questions asked. I've seen uh, their lives change. Mm-hmm. This marriage. Yeah. I mean, our. It, you know, it's just funny that you would bring up these, you know, this topic. You know, right. That, that, right. I, I think about that a lot. It's just mm-hmm. the. Uh, would we rather our family members be unchurched in this American church? I mean, I. But this American church he's talking about was evangelical. In fact, this particular verse you're talking about got saved through this American church that he he, he criticizes. But because he soured on it. I, I never had the opportunity to ask that question. Mm-hmm. You know, is this American church, every church that don't believe what you believe, mm-hmm. or, or, or if a church comes in line with what you think, is yeah. they are no longer that American church? Right. I mean, I would rather... Me, my thought would be people being in church on Sunday morning. Yeah. Even if it's an American church. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because, you know, you think of the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, and, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, in terms of their official beliefs, are just so far away from us in terms of what they think in terms of, you know, authority, uh, what they think in terms of the meaning of the... You know the, the place of tradition uh, on almost on equal par with uh, with scripture, and yet you go into a Catholic church on Sunday, and what are they doing? Well, they're reading the Bible. <laughs> I mean, imagine it was a time they didn't read the Bible. Imagine it was a time when that was not something that uh, they wanted their people to do. But Vatican II did change that. Now the lady is encouraged to read read their Bible. And people get saved when they read the Bible. People come to know Christ when they read the Bible. And uh, so you have the uh, Bible being read. And, and then lo and behold, you know, we went to a funeral in the Catholic Church recently. And what were the songs they were singing? They were singing Amazing Grace. And they were singing How Great Thou Art. They were singing all the hymns that I learned in, uh, in uh, evangelical churches. Now that's not to say that the official beliefs of the church we, 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 we agree with. We don't. We don't. But we don't discount we don't discount the the power of God's Spirit to work um, in places where the you know we would not think that this is uh, something we put our blessing upon. But God may have different ideas, and you know His heart is maybe just a bit bigger than our own, because our hearts tend to be narrowed in that respect. And so, anyway, you know I could tell you all kinds of stories about uh, meeting Christians who are attenders of Roman Catholic churches and um, you know I know a lot of Reformed people that would say I don't believe you, I don't believe you something wrong here but I mean 
I can't discount what I've seen and heard. Remember Tom coming up to a fellow who was a Roman Catholic and he professed to know Jesus and, and love Jesus. And I figured, well, I'm going to trip him up. I'm going to, I said to him, if you were to come before God, if you were to die tonight and come before, I used the evangelism explosion diagnostic question. You were to come before God and he was to say to you, why should I allow you into my heaven? What would you say? He said, because Jesus died for my sins. <laughs> okay. No, you're Roman Catholic. You're not supposed to say that. He said, but I, that's what I believe. I believe I will go to heaven because Jesus Christ died for my sins. Now, now maybe he had read Evangelism of Explosion and knew what the answer was supposed to be. I don't know. I know we had a guy that came here among our own assembly in a night that we went out to. Was that the progressive dinner or something like that that we were doing? We had the uh, people that lived across from us and uh, uh, their sons were friends with our son and uh, he Roman Catholic family and they came among us and uh, he's a firefighter we had a, a young man here who, who was visiting on a couple of occasions and he had an interest in volunteer firefighting he found out a New York City firefighter and so he and he's in a Baptist church so he went up to him and he said uh, you know I wonder you know I'm, I'm a firefighter I want, I want to be a volunteer firefighter how do you how do you uh, share your faith when you are amongst you know the people at your firehouse in New York and, and you know we're figuring you know share my faith Catholics don't share their faith and <laughs> probably not say much at all along those lines or if it's faith it's a Catholic faith then he says well I come to I come to work and I bring my Bible with me and people see me reading the Bible and it opens up opportunities to ask questions and I can tell them about Jesus and he's talking just like an evangelical Christian would talk and of course we've all met Roman Catholic people who like to listen to you know Charles Stanley and like to you know do all the things that evangelical people like where do they get the taste for that stuff where do they get the desire for that stuff except for the fact that God has worked and we had a group of people that were across from us when we lived down in Jersey and they were having a Bible study in their home and uh, you know there were people that attended that Bible study that were clear that they were not genuine believers they were just you know, a group of Roman Catholics were meeting to study the Bible but we met a lot of people that were genuinely concerned about the Bible they asked me to teach and they were receptive they were just as receptive or even more receptive to what I taught them about the Bible than any Protestant group that I've been among to teach except you guys of course but uh, and my point is um, the reality of, 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 of something being of God is not because they have attained to our own understandings about all of revealed truth it's that Christ is present through the Spirit and Christ can be present through the Spirit with many things that are not right else he would not be here Am I right? If we would expect Christ through the Spirit to be present with us, are we the perfect Christians with perfect understandings and full um, blazed understandings of the things of... of, uh, No, we're not. And if that was the requirement, we have no hope ourselves of the presence of Christ through the Spirit. And so, again, our Lord is a long-suffering Lord, and our Lord is a gracious Lord, and our Lord delights to be where true and faithful hearts are present, even where understandings are imperfect, that we might grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And who's to say that's not happening in a plethora of places that we would not have um, uh, our own 
background to fully say, well, I don't, I don't think that's really kosher. God would be working there. Well, maybe maybe our ideas of what's kosher and God's ideas of what's kosher is, is not the same. Um, so anyway, that's just what I've learned to, uh, I've lived to learn. I mean, I think of things that I've been reading in recent years that were written by writers that I was told when I was a young Christian, that's liberal, that's liberal. You can't be touching things like that. It's liberal. And I'm finding the people there, I'm told, are liberal or are people that are uh, fully carrying out a faith under the authority of God's word and looking to learn God's word and looking to be conformed to God's word. And yet these are people that a lot of Christians would say because they haven't attained the perfection of understanding that they think they possess, that there shouldn't be uh, respect given to them. And again, my, I think I said it last week in a different context, but I'll say it again. The good is not the enemy of the perfect. And just because we don't have perfection, and we won't have perfection until we get to glory, that doesn't mean the good is its enemy. And so when we see good in any place, let's acknowledge it as good, and let's befriend the good, and let's uh, endeavor to be a blessing to the good, or to be blessed by that which is good in other places so anyway we've kicked that around long enough not long enough to get through the whole of our hour together so that when people come back next week they're with us in fullness but I thought I ought to just express that in terms of Paul's own relationship to the Roman Christians well Paul desires to be at Rome that he might impart to them a spiritual blessing he's ready to preach the gospel to those that are at Rome and again preaching the gospel to a church already established indicates that the gospel is not just for unbelievers it's for believers as well we need to live in the light of the gospel Paul could write to the Philippians only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel always coming back to the gospel as the standard for Christian living uh, he will say in chapter 12 that the Christian life is to be based upon everything he's expounded with respect to the gospel. We don't get the gospel to get saved and then move on to something different for the Christian life. No, the gospel is to form and structure our Christian lives. By the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your spiritual service, and don't be conformed to this world. It's, it's the gospel that is to shape us and, uh, and, and form us as, as God's people. And so Paul, uh, preaching the gospel to these believers, uh, desires to, again, impart to them uh, a spiritual gift. He, he encapsulates the uh, theme of the gospel in terms of the righteousness of God in the gospel, is uh, this revealed righteousness. This revealed righteousness, although it can have many definitions, many shades of meaning, uh, I think is really in, really in this context speaking about God's saving activity in the world. And God's saving activity can be called righteousness because God promises salvation. Uh, and his promise of salvation is that which he fulfills in Jesus. And so when God gives promises and then fulfills it, that's the righteous thing to do. That's the right thing to do. That's conforming to God's words, God's promise. God himself always conforms to his own words. He is the righteous God. He loves righteousness. He himself is righteous, and so he will never violate his promises. And so part of his promises is to send his, his, his Messiah, to, to be this, the one who will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And so in the gospel is revealed that very saving righteousness of God, that fulfillment of divine promise and divine purpose and divine plan 
in the sending of Christ into the world. And this power, of, this gospel, which is his saving righteousness, is his power for salvation to all who believe. It's that which was received by faith and um, is a priority of the Jew in terms of God's revelation to the Jew, but also the Gentiles. This is not a, a strictly Jewish thing. This becomes a, 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 nation, a, a, a multinational thing. It becomes the thing that is the gospel that's sent to the nations. And um, Having said those things, uh, Paul in verse 18 seems to move in a radically different direction because we're moving away from the revelation of the righteousness of God to the revelation of the wrath of God. And we might be surprised by this because uh, I think a lot of us, if we think of being ready to preach the gospel to people, we would not really want to start so much at the wrath of God as, as the love of God. That the love of God has provided salvation in the Son, bringing John 3.16, bringing a plethora of scripture that speaks of God having loved um, and in love, sending his Son. God commended his own love towards us, and while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's all things Paul will say to the Roman Christians later on in chapter 5. The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. But it's five chapters before he talks about the love of God. And the reason that he does that is that I think Paul is looking to tell, looking to explain or expound or um, bring the attention to the Roman Christians to uh, the need for this gospel. What would this world be like without the gospel? What is the world like without the gospel? Without the gospel coming as the saving power of God, the saving righteousness of God, where would that leave us? Well, it leave us basically exposed to divine wrath. The wrath of God, which he says in the present hour, is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their truth, unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so, um, the theme of God's wrath comes in. And we'll say more about God's wrath in a moment. I just want to just say something first about, uh, who is Paul addressing this section in chapter 1, 2? Or what is he describing? Or who is he describing? And I ask this question because in large measure, many commentaries, many teachers and expounders of God's word would say what we have here in chapter 1 is the picture of where the Gentile world would be without the gospel. And that the focus is mainly upon pagans. This is what the pagan world is like apart from of the gospel. And I understand why they say that. Uh, they say that because what is being described here is something of the worst of pagan idolatries. Um, claiming to be wise, they became fools. We read in verse 22 and verse 23 exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I didn't write it down. If you have a cross reference in your Bibles, you'll probably see that the cross reference that's in the Old Testament is to one of the Psalms, and maybe Psalm 102 or something in that section, where this exchange of the God's glory, the glory of the God of Israel, um, is being attributed to the Jews. The Jews have made this great exchange. They've made this exchange for that which is not God. Now, maybe they didn't sink to the fullness of pagan idolatry that's described here, but the reality is this is not a Gentile problem alone. That not having God in our knowledge, not glorifying God as God, that these things that Paul says is true of Gentile sinners, it's also true of Jewish sinners as well. 
And the point of the fact is that Paul's description is of God's wrath that's revealed from heaven in verse 18, not against Gentile or pagan ungodliness and unrighteousness, but all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It is not just the pagans who suppress God's truth. Again, remember Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah says, go to the east, go to the west, go to Keter on one hand, go to, I forgot what the other place is, and see if you can find any such thing as this. Has any nation changed their gods for that which is not God? I mean, my people have done that. My people have changed their gods for their God, for things that are not gods. That my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me. The fountain of living water. What have they done? They've viewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns. They can hold no water. And then there's the picture of their idolatrous acts in the rest of the book of Jeremiah. Of the spiritual harlotry and uh, immoralities that they have committed. And some of that well could be the practices that were pagan practices that were adopted by Israel. Again, remember, it was on Mount Carmel that the prophet Elijah was confronting who? Um, the prophets of Baal. Well, 400 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel that were disseminating their, a priest of Baal, disseminating their teachings, disseminating their worship within the land of Israel. Jezebel had brought them all down from her own ancestral home up, up in Tyre and Sidon, where she was from, and it infiltrated the land. Uh, in fact, the Baals were the Canaanite gods. Again, the Israel, Israel took over Canaan, but the Canaanite gods, they continued to, to worship and to serve in many places. Again, not... Uh, I mean, I don't think we can say that Israel was exempted from all of this. I think there's a contrast between chapter 1 and chapter 2. But the contrast is not between the Gentiles and the Jews. It's the contrast between the wrath of God that's revealed in the present age now it's being revealed. It's a present tense revelation. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And the right and the wrath of God that will be revealed in the age to come. Now again, much of our own uh, sense of divine wrath is focused upon the coming wrath. Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And we think of final judgment and probably John the Baptist thought a final judgment as well. But uh, the wrath to come is not only the final judgment. God is exercising wrath now. Uh, John 3.36 speaks of the wrath of God abiding on us. The person who does not believe has the wrath of God abiding on us. Paul can speak of we being the children of wrath even as the rest. And, and not just the children of wrath in terms of wrath being stored up for us, Although that's chapter 2, speaking of the wrath that's stored up for us against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, that's to come. But there is a present wrath being presently revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so I think that's the contrast. The wrath that, in the words of uh, Romans 1, gave them up. Therefore God gave them up. For this reason God gave them up. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. That's an expression of the wrath of God. And I think it's important to see is that that wrath of God is not lightning bolts coming down from heaven. It's not God being filled with such fury and, and displeasure and wrath 
that they're just constant outbursts, uncontrolled wrath that's being expressed against people in this world. Because that's the kind of wrath that were true of the pagan gods. And when you see the meaning of wrath in the Greek background, again, the Bible comes to us in the Greek language in the New Testament. In the Greek background, it was that unrestrained wrath of the gods that was petulant and it was capricious and it was it could be I mean you spent all your time trying to ward off the wrath of the gods you gave all these sacrifices to appease the gods because the gods were just simply filled with horrible anger that could spurt out at any moment unbidden and unexpected and just at any capricious time the, the, the gods chose. And so imagine living your life that way, trying to just appease the gods from coming at you with wrath in every such way. Well, thankfully, the, the true God is not that God. He's not that God. His wrath is his own displeasure, yes, but it's a principal displeasure. It's a displeasure that operates in abundance of ways. They're not ways of uncontrolled unregulated un, just something that overcomes him that makes him to just be disagreeable and hard to get along with and, and difficult because here this wrath is revealed from heaven that just simply gives people up to that which they choose that which they want and I, I think when we see wrath in that way it's kind of a picture of what is the ultimate wrath the coming wrath is not wholly dissimilar I think the wrath in the present age is something you know how in salvation you have the blessings of the age to come that come to us now and what we're going to get in terms of the fullness of the blessing and the consummation of blessings is not wholly dissimilar to what we have now we have the divine smile we have his favor we have the enjoyment of his presence we have all the all the blessings of salvation which will then be given to us in a full measure. It's the down payment of a future inheritance. And it's not like the down payment comes in one thing and then you get something wholly different when you get to glory. You know, it's all the blessings of the Spirit and the blessings of communion and the blessings of fellowship and the blessings of submission and the blessings of glad service and all of that. And in the age to come, it's, well, I don't know, you know 24-hour Netflix, I don't know, whatever people think will be enjoyable in the age to come. No, it's not that. It's not something wholly different. You, you know, it's the same thing. It's the, it's the blessings of the age to come that we now have in its down payment form and then it's in its fullness. And I think this wrath is also a, a, a type of what's to come. It's not dissimilar. It, uh, it uh, is the down payment of that future full-blown abandonment of God to people, to their own things and desires and pleasures. and That's divine wrath. Whole, full distance and separation from all the enjoyment of life, life eternal that we know in communion with God. Imagine have none of that. Have none of that. To be wholly bereft of life, that's death in itself. That's death itself. So anyway, we find this divine wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He uses these two words, ungodliness and unrighteousness, which I don't remember how many times they come together, but they come together often enough. And um, 
this word ungodliness is, is Eusebius. We, we get the word, uh, we get piety, we get devotion. It, it's not just ungodliness is just a, a different name for unrighteousness or godliness. It's just a different name for righteousness. Um, godliness speaks of the acts of devotion and piety. It speaks more of a relational commitment uh, to God entering into his presence, the enjoyment of his presence. And ungodliness is to be at a distance from God's presence, is to practice those things that will keep us from the divine presence. And again, you think of man's exile from Eden. Man is in Eden, what? Enjoying the presence of God, walking with the Lord in the cool of the day, is the descriptor that meets us after the fall. And it seemed to be something Adam knew. It seemed to be something he heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So it was familiar. And he ran and hid from God's presence. There was once enjoyment of God's presence. Now there's not enjoyment of God's presence. And that lack of enjoyment of God's presence that Adam felt internally within his own soul is then kind of... Um, it's solidified. It's uh, made concrete not just inwardly, but outwardly. Out of Eden you go. You're separated from his presence. Not only separated from the joy of divine fellowship, walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day, now you're not in the place of God's presence at all. You're exiled from Eden, where God was present. And uh, and I think there were things that were made for man to come back and return, you have that Abel and you have Cain offering sacrifice to God, different kinds of sacrifices in different ways. One was accepted, one was not accepted. Where did they offer those sacrifices? I think they probably came up to the gates of Eden, where they had been exiled, and they came, that was where God was. You know, there was, there is, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, there is this linear thing that's going on. God's in Eden, man is in Eden with God. The world's outside. The world, I guess, with man in Eden with God, that was the ultimate place in which the, the, the command to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Eden was to be an expanding enterprise, it would seem to be the picture. The garden was to grow, not just the agricultural growth, but the people growth. Fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And the blessings of Eden were to abound. Through sin, man's exiled from the divine presence, and yet there's an ability to return to the the presence of the Lord. Because man, likely outside of Eden, didn't dwell too far away. Came to the Lord with their offerings. Then men came to worship, came to call upon the name of the Lord. We read about uh, with the birth of Enos. Then men came to call upon the name of the Lord. I think that means they were praying, they were worshiping. They were coming before God. And I think it was towards Eden that they looked, just as the Israelites looked towards the temple. That race of people after the exile from Eden were looking towards Eden, looking to the presence of God. And that really does seem to exist throughout the rest of the narrative. Man, um, uh, um, you know, man is placed out of the garden east of Eden, and then Cain says... Um, or Cain doesn't just say he, he does he, uh, he goes out from the presence of the Lord we're told where did he go? well he went east out from the presence of the Lord and 
built a city, right? There's a picture of distance, separation, moving away from the presence of the Lord. And then you finally have um, the flood, when people began to multiply and rebellion, um, God brought the flood, and then you have the uh, Tower of Babel. It seems like after the flood, this whole relationship changed. I mean, Eden is, whatever they had in Eden, the garden is no longer there, it would seem, and now instead of this um, horizontal, did I say vertical before? I didn't mean to. This horizontal thing of man moving east from the presence of the Lord, now the presence of the Lord is seen to be in heaven. This heavenly presence. God looked down upon man at the uh, Tower of Babel, and uh, we will go down and see what you know what it is that they're doing. So there is that uh, vertical uh, picture. But again, it's all the picture of the presence of God, the nearness of God. Now, ultimately, God's everywhere. <laughs> There's no space in which He is not. He's omnipresent. He's not localized in in an Eden. He's not localized in a heaven. Not above. Not eastward, not westward, but everywhere. But yet we're talking here about the special presence of God. We're talking about the presence of God that's approached in worship. Again, we're, 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 we're just you know, finite creatures. We can't comprehend the infinite. And, but we worship a God who, of revelation, a God who's revealed himself, a God who's made himself known. But he's made his wrath known, his anger against sin known, in the way that he this, he brings distance between himself and sinners. It's not that he, you know, desires that distance. Man has chosen that distance. Um, your sins have separated between you and your God, is what Isaiah says to Israel. Your sins are the factor that has brought this separation about. And God, in His grace, comes and brings reconciliation, bringing people back from that distance to again occupy fellowship with him. But this divine wrath is against all of the ungodliness of those that, again, will not have God in their knowledge. They won't approach him with hearts of love and devotion and commitment and dependence. We'll live it, we're on our own. We'll live as we please. We'll live as we choose. Who needs God anyway? We'll live by our own light, our own teachers, our own gurus, our own you know, prophets. Uh, you know, we don't need God. And that's their attitude. And that's ungodliness. That's ungodliness. This is, I do not need God. And then unrighteousness, it addresses the moral acts of opposition to divine standards. It's divine norms that are just being transgressed over and over and over again. God says this and we say that. It's this opposition to the morality and the ethics of Bible revelation. And so, Godliness has reference really to the person of God. Unrighteousness has respect to the standards of God. We in sin bolt against both. We don't want devotion. We don't want laws. We don't want commandments. We don't want regulations. We don't want rules. We don't want God to govern us in any way, shape, or form. And that elicits the divine response, which is not unreasoned, um, uncontrolled anger. It's it's justice. It's divine justice that's revealed in his wrath. But that wrath is active. That wrath is always doing something. And, you know, a lot of times we think of wrath and we put it together in our categories, as we often do, with the thought of a judge, the angry judge. Now, how many people want to go into court and meet an angry judge? 
You know, you want a court. You you don't want to meet an angry judge, do you? You want to meet a, a fair and impartial judge. You want to have a judge that will uphold the law. Now, I'm not saying that anger is never referenced to God as a judge, but it's a judge who has pronounced the verdict in righteousness. He's taken into account all of the facts. In fact, in chapter two, is going to speak about his wrath um, against the righteous judgment of God. Look at it in verse 5 of chapter 2. Because of your hard and penitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's, what kind of judgment? Righteous judgment will be revealed. Um, It's not an unjust, impetuous, uncontrolled outburst of anger because God is just uh, storing up wrath in his own heart that has to burst out. Um... That's not the picture. God is just in all of his ways, in all of his dealings, in all of his doings. And um, so I think wrath is very much akin in the Old Testament. I, I can't re- reference all the passages and the verses just offhand. But it, it, you know, we think more, uh, we think of the angry judge. Um, I think we would think more properly if we would think of the idea of, a, of the jilted lover, I know I use that expression with regard to the book of Jeremiah, the jilted lover, that God is a God who loved his creation. He loved the man and the woman made in his image and likeness whom he placed in Eden. And what they did is they chose not to love him, not to heed him, not to obey him. And what gets elicited in the heart of God is the response of his jealousy. His jealousy. And his jealousy is not a bad thing. His jealousy is the confirmation of his love. Because you really don't love the people you're not jealous over. You're not looking to protect and guard against um, evil, poisonous snakes that come and look to tempt the heart of a woman away from her God. Um. I think there's something to be said for the fact that the wrath of God is certainly an aspect of his righteousness, yes, but also an aspect of his love. It's also an aspect of his love. And again, we think of them as poles apart, but again, we got to recognize we're talking about God. We're talking about God. And God is everything that is in him. And, you know, our minds need to separate wrath from righteousness and from justice and from goodness and from uh, love we have need to separate that because again we're creatures and we're not infinite we're not an infinite god whose love is just and whose righteousness is wrath and whose wrath is grace and whose grace is it's not to be separated. It's you know, the, the, the technical, theological idea behind that is what's called divine simplicity. That, that, that God can't be divided up into segments. He is who he is. And um, again, a lot of times we don't appreciate that all of his attributes are in him. And all of his attributes that we parcel out as what is things that we need to take mind of in terms of attention in this particular part of scripture is also informed by the whole all, all the rest of it you know, his wisdom his justice his goodness his mercy it's all, all, all there in every aspect of his attributes and you know, we kind of see it when you see even in human relations 
um, jealousy being expressed uh, in terms of, of wrath and, and judgment. Uh, there's a television show that I don't recommend. I, I saw like the first couple of episodes of it, and uh, I won't even name the name of the thing because there are some parts of it there, you know, very much adult. But anyway, um, what you what you, you had was a, a man who his relationship with with a wife has just been based upon something that's been um, um, arranged. An arranged relationship. I won't tell you why it was arranged, but it was arranged. It wasn't something that was the result of love and meeting and desire and the rest. It was simply arranged. And uh, uh, really all through the years, having children, having children raised and together, um, there's still this sense of, uh, of distance. There's something else that's there that has drawn them together and not really love. And then there comes about this situation with someone who had hurt the wife in a previous time in her life. And um, the man is unaware of the way in which she was hurt. And then he comes to grips with the reality of how she was hurt. And that brings out what in his mind is justice. It's a wrath that's rooted in jealousy because his bride, the one whom he is coming to love with all of his heart, has been violated, has been wounded, has been hurt, has been devastated by this person who now he takes in his own hands, I mean wrongly of course, in terms of human law, but in terms of just, I guess you say, the law of the jungle, he kills this person, and in reaction to that, her love is spurred towards him. She becomes to love him with the kind of love they've never had before, because now she knows she's safe with him because he will protect me. Whatever trouble, whatever danger will ever come my way, he will be there to protect me in in any possible way that he can. And so she becomes secure in his love. And, and that's just an idea of how in which these emotions or these aspects of um, or attributes uh, are not wholly separate from one another. When a man would kill to protect his children out of jealousy for their well-being, um, that's an emotion that we might say is a just wrath that takes place rooted in love, rooted in the desire to protect. And I guess what I'm saying to you that this is part of, I think, what we see in God, in God's reaction to that which wounds and hurts and devastates and violates his creation. God cannot be indifferent towards that. He's filled with a holy wrath, with a just wrath, with a loving wrath that meets that violation of his creation and of his creatures in a way that um, expresses the totality of his own displeasure and of the fact that this cannot stand. You see somebody saying, this cannot stand and I'm going to act in justice to address the problem you say, well, that's wrath. That's zeal. That's jealousy. And I'm saying those are all aspects that enter in to this idea of divine wrath. So it's nothing impure, and it's nothing uncontrolled, and it's nothing that is just horrific, or it's nothing that's just the total opposite of what you see in genuine love. It's all related to who God is, that he will respond to 
evil in just that way. Does that, does that make sense to you? You have questions? Okay, I'm asking again. Does that make sense to you? Somewhat. I mean, I know this is kind of like a new idea. The wrath that's rooted in, in love. But I think it's part of it. It's part of jealousy, which is rooted in love. Um, I, the Lord, am a jealous God. And what does God in jealousy do? He visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the third and fourth generation. Um, God acts in jealousy because you have sullied my world. You've violated my worship. You've brought pain and, and suffering into a world that I made to be good. And so God's reaction and response to that is never one of indifference. It's always one of holy wrath. And read into that wise wrath, just wrath, loving wrath, all the attributes of God entering in to these actions of wrath. You all with me? Kind of, sort of, maybe. Well, take it by faith until we get to the next part. Well, I think it's very interesting, the statement you just made. What's that? That we're talking about. I mean, these adjectives you don't usually see before wrath. Yeah. Holy, wise, just, loving mm-hmm. wrath. Those are very interesting adjectives you just used. This is all part of the divine nature. Wrath. What's that? That corresponds with his nature. Yeah. yeah. Not our wrath. Not our, yeah. Our wrath is a lot different. Yes. So again, I just use that illustration to bring how love brought that expression of justice in a human relation that wouldn't wouldn't he wouldn't have killed a guy otherwise other offenses didn't hurt him but the fact that it was someone he loved that was hurt led him in this fictional thing to do the thing that he did and, and I'm, I'm just saying that's just a, a human illustration and again let me just point this out we're talking about God here and we're talking about God in human language we're not talking about God in God language. We don't have access to God language. We don't have access to the knowledge of God as God knows God. We have access to God only as we're capable of knowing God, which is on a very human, limited, finite level. And yet God's given revelation of himself. And he gives revelation of himself in a way that just says, you can't comprehend all that I am. You know, I can, you know, what shall, who shall I say has sent me? I am that I am. Well, that only... That gives a little bit of information, but not all. But it gives the information you can't know me completely. I am what I am, and I can't define myself in all the fullness of my being to you. It's impossible. But I can give you inklings and aspects, and it's all in human language. It's all what's called analogical language. It's an analog. Things that happen in human relations, we then reason. It's true in God because God's used those very terms of human relationships with reference to himself. But we need to fence that off with the fact that nothing of human sin ever enters into it. You know, in our wrath, human sin is always a reality of it. We None of us have wrath that's always wise and just and perfect. Any of those attributes can't be spoken of about human wrath and anger. Uh, even when it's justified it's not perfect but God does all that he does in full perfection full perfection of his attributes coming to bear upon that which he does but my main thing is to is to just uh, cordon off the language against any kind of 
uh, pagan notion of a divine uh, display of wrath that uh, we have to be always shielding ourselves from and figuring out ways we're going to appease the gods from just coming and getting us and throwing lightning bolts from heaven. That's just not it. In fact, what God does is gives people what they want, really, what they're asking for. But uh, we really can't go into the fullness of that uh, today. But I, I hope this has been a good discussion. I hope it's been somewhat helpful. And uh, maybe it'll elicit some questions. So if we do an open forum down the road, feel free to raise the questions or raise it to me personally. But um, I think we're kind of prepared, at least all of us, to proceed with Romans next week when we get the full measure of our group back again. Well, let's give God thanks for what we've been able to uh, see in God's word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we're we're thankful that you've made yourself known. We're thankful that you've made yourself known in in language we can understand and we cannot know your fullness in, in any comprehensive way, but we're thankful that the knowledge we have of you is genuine and true and real and and um, and yet, Lord, we, we pray it would always be balanced and that all the realities you've made known about yourself would always come to bear, that we would not take just one concept like wrath and just go to town with it and just um, insulate it from the rest of the things you've made known about yourself. So we pray you'd give us wisdom in handling your word, give us understanding into the Um, revelation you've given of these aspects of your nature and of your character that you tell us is at work in the world even today not just in the age to come but right now we see the displays of your own just and holy and righteous and loving displeasure against all that comes to sully your creation and not give you the honor that you are worthy of receiving and that is rooted in human ungodliness and human unrighteousness. So we pray that you'd help us to consider these things and give us understanding in them. Bless us now as we greet one another this morning, as we enter into a time of fellowship before our gathering in this room again for the morning worship. Draw near, teach us from your truth that we might live lives that serve you better and are more pleasing before you, we'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen.